Hi there, and welcome to another Oslo Roundtable. My name is Todd Fraser, and I'm an intensivist here in Queensland, Australia. I'm delighted to host this roundtable, as regional ICU has been a constant theme in my career, as it has for most of the guests joining me today. Penny Stewart is an intensivist and director of intensive care at Alice Springs Hospital. For those of you who don't know, Alice Springs is one of the most isolated intensive care units on the planet, placed at the heart of Australia's desert interior. Paul Seckham is an intensivist who works with Penny at Alice Springs. Paul is passionate about indigenous health and has proven high quality research can be performed even in remote settings. Providing with, with a trainee view are Lauren Cox and Claire Corrigan. Lauren is currently in her first year of training, while Claire is about to sit her fellowship exams. Rob Bevan joins us to provide a college perspective as the Vice President of the College of Intensive Care Medicine. Rob oversaw the update of the training guidelines while the Director of Education for the college, which now sees regional training becoming a mandatory component of ICU training in Australia and New Zealand. Penny, I'd like to start with you if I could. You've been in practice in the remotest of rural intensive care years, uh, for many years now. What attracted you to that position in the first place and what's your experience been with it? It's, that's an actually complicated question. Um, the thing that attracted me really um, to rural and remote medicine was equity. Um, I, I went to Alice Springs Hospital when I was finishing off my training to do a medical registrar job and realised that there were two types of Australia. There was rural, remote Australia and there was city Australia. And they weren't equal. They weren't equal with regards to healthcare services. Um, and I looked at the people that I was looking after in Central Australia and realised that they were the sickest people I'd pretty much ever come across. They're also much younger and that at that stage there was intensive care that wasn't good enough for, um, for looking after, after people and people were dying of reversible disease um, as a result of it. And I thought there was two things I could do is walk away from it and never think about it again or do something about it. Um, uh, and then I went back to doing my city jobs um, and five years later I got a, um, a call and I thought, well, if I'm true to my word and I'm true to the fact that as an Australian um, looking after Indigenous Australia was incredibly important to me that I was taking on the advantages of what modern Australia was without taking on the the complications and the problems that modern Australia had created for our Indigenous mob. There was also the other things that I liked, Alice Springs as a place, I thought it was a really beautiful place, I loved working in the country, I think that your life is much better if you can walk to work um, rather than um, having to drive a long distance. Um, and I could see a sense of purpose. Paul, I might throw to you, how difficult has it been for you to maintain your skills in Alice Springs in terms of staying up to date with literature, attending conferences and so on? What's been your experience? Um, so there's a couple of levels to that, isn't there? One is, I guess, maintaining uh, procedural skills, um, and then one is maintaining sort of a, a currency of, 
knowledge and then maintaining a currency also of uh, the slightly more unusual things that you might see more commonly in, in big centres. Um, so <clears throat> I'll start with the procedural stuff because I was listening to, um, uh, and I hope I don't cross any lines here by cross-promoting another podcast. I was listening to Andrew Davies' podcast uh, recently. He's talking to David Tuxon about <clears throat> uh, almost the opposite of what you're alluding to. Um, so Andrew asked David, uh, you know, how is it that uh, consultants in big tertiary units can maintain their procedural skills when they have a queue of uh, junior staff lining up to, to do them? <clears throat> and in many ways, we have the opposite problem in regional Australia. Um, uh, so, you know, the opportunity to stick lines in or uh, intubate comes up uh, in some ways more often than is convenient or that you would like, but there is an intrinsic reward, uh, I think, and I still get a lot of enjoyment from getting uh, you know, that sensation of the needle entering the vein, that pop you get, um, <clears throat> particularly when you've done it well. Um, and, and I guess when you've got a junior staff member standing next to the bed watching you do it and you do it well and you do it slickly uh, and you just out of the corner of your eye you see that uh, that face of the junior doctor going wow that was slick and impressive um, and knowing you can do that and do it well is uh, I still get uh, a kick out of that the other the other things are slightly more difficult and I guess what what you tend not to see in the regional centres are the really complicated patients. Um, and I'm always in two minds about whether I miss them or not. And I'm sort of thinking of the awful haematological disasters that um, I certainly looked after as a senior registrar in a big tertiary unit. Um, and, you know, part of, part of you misses that and part of you also goes, actually, um, you know, they're always really difficult and they often ended badly. So perhaps I'm, I don't miss that so much. Uh, so maintaining, uh, you know, an up-to-date awareness of what's happening in that space can be difficult. Um, <clears throat> what I can do at the moment is, you know, start to date with the literature. Um, there will come a point, I think, where I will need to spend some time back in a, a bigger unit and that can be done as part of a secondment or a clinical placement um, as part of a sabbatical or something similar. Um, there's a similar story around I think paediatric patients. Um, you know we see just enough sick kids in Alice Springs um, that you need to know what you're doing but not quite enough to be comfortable with them if you're ever comfortable with um, looking after really sick kids when you're an adult intensivist. Uh, and again, you know, maintaining that currency is a little difficult, uh, but not impossible. We run uh, a paediatric basic course uh, at least every second year. So it's a chance to at least keep up to date with the, um, the theoretical side of things. Uh, we have a really strong working relationship with our uh, paediatric referral unit, which is the Women's and Children's Hospital in Adelaide. Um, and, you know, call out to those guys down there. They are always excellent, always happy to uh, talk our way through a complex paediatric problem. Now, I think the last thing you referred to was uh, conferences. Um, you know, it is difficult from regional units to get to conferences. Uh, there's... Uh, 
uh, a travel impost. Um, so from Alice Springs to anywhere uh, is, you know, three hours minimum usually by plane, which means, and you're limited to one flight a day, which means you often have to arrive the day before a conference and then stay a day after a conference. So a three-day conference turns into five days uh, away from the unit. Um, it's also away from your family. Um, uh, and it also means that uh, somebody has to stay behind to look after the ship. Uh, uh, and ensuring that that happens in an equitable fashion um, can sometimes be a little bit difficult and challenging as well. Uh, so, <clears throat> you know, that's not to say that it's impossible. It, it can be done. Uh, and I think increasingly now, one of the perhaps benefits or silver linings to COVID has been uh, an increasing recognition that some of these things can be done in a hybrid fashion. Uh, and that's going to make things, uh, I think, a little easier, but necessarily will miss out on perhaps the more important aspects of conferences and meetings, which is the networking that occurs uh, between sessions. Rob, I'll go to you. Um, from a college perspective, there's obviously a renewed interest in regional intensive care in Australasia. You were part of the program that uh, oversaw the changes to the training requirements that now require trainees to go through some level of regional training. What was the, the impetus for that? Oh, yeah, I think, well, total, we've got as colleges, we are entrusted by the Medical Council in Australia and New Zealand um, and actually accredited to a pretty high standard in a process to, to train high quality specialists who can provide services to our communities. And that's through a combination of, of, of training and, and CPD. And we see our responsibility equally applicable to our communities, irrespective of where they are in Australia or in New Zealand. Um, so despite the practical challenges, we as a college believe that, you know, all people in our country should have access to the knowledge and skills of an intensive care specialist. But we've got to recognise that what does access actually mean? Times they are changing and that's, and that's never going to be overnight. But we've got a responsibility to all of our communities, not just the biggest, the biggest cities in Australia and New Zealand. So how's, you know, it's, we've, we've had to do that. How's it worked? Well, I mean, the college really we can affect supply to, to, to a degree and it's a work in progress, but we've got pretty much a limited ability to determine the demand in the rural and regional centres. Um, you know, and we've, we've, we've probably underexplored how we can encourage the redressing of this geographical disparity. But, you know, I think the other trouble is that training programmes, we've brought this in through the 2014 curriculum reforms, mandating some rural exposure in some sense. But our training, training programmes have got an inherent six to 10 year lag before curriculum changes can result in any meaningful data. Um, and that can't keep us blinkered to the fact that we've got to adapt to feedback. So it really is a work in progress. But all training programs have to be an iterative process as the trainees, the supervisors, fellows and the community indeed feedback on what works, doesn't work, where the gaps are. And quite rightly, we've got to focus on inequity, especially in those parts of the world where there's an increased proportion of Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander peoples and Maori and Pacific Island peoples, which Kel Surprise is the more regional and remote parts of our countries. Penny, just on that, in terms of recruitment, um, what have been the challenges for you as a, as a director of a regional ICU in terms of getting to uh, getting people to come and work with you? 
Yeah, the biggest the biggest challenge is um, the lead in time until you can get recruitment. Um, it ha there has to be a trust in the system. It has to be a work a work environment that um, allows people to have a work life balance. Um, most rural places have a, 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 to convince their administration to have a kind of a one and four. Um, roster and until you have a one and four roster it's really difficult to encourage consultants to come um, it's just um, I did a one and two on call for quite a long time not many people will will do that but one, once you can do a one and four um, that that becomes um, important the other thing is making sure that people have um, actually seen it in their training time so that they're because you're always biased towards what you've seen, um, you you believe that that is more important. So if if no one comes in their training time and sees the importance of what their work is, it will never be understood. And I think the other thing is that we really do need to think about other kind of activities so that one and four roster can be absolutely consolidated more in the non-clinical roles which we do very well like teaching um, a lot of the safety and quality stuff but also in potentially other clinical roles such as getting a diploma of palliative care and um, doing anesthetics or doing a second specialty. Lauren you're at the beginning of your journey through intensive care training um, when you're yeah. looking at the the program and you see that you need to do uh, a period of time in a regional area, how does that um, affect you? What are you thinking about in, in those terms? That's a good question. And um, I suppose as uh, an adult who is established in a metropolitan setting, you have just thinking about yourself as a person, your, you know, your social supports, your family, your friends, and I suppose having a think about how regional time, as enthusiastic as you are, how that fits in or how you kind of navigate that. Um, my bosses yesterday, well, last year, they kind of thought of me and approached me and said, you know, we know you're really engaged in social justice issues, you know, in health, and we think this might be something you find really exciting, you know, and, and equity in, in health. So, you know, would you be open to this? And um, I was like, yep, yep, love it. And then it was it was taking a little bit of a deep breath <laughs> and being like, okay, um, let's just put my, my life on hold for a little bit. Um, and you just do it because you think, I think this is going to be a really worthwhile once in a lifetime exposure. And you, as, as Penny said, you, you don't know until you know, until you go and do it. And, and arriving here, is truly a privilege, like it really is. Um, and I've just loved it. And I think it's one of those things that, you know, you don't know what you don't know type thing. And I feel like I'm um, getting to know the country that I've lived in for my entire life for the first time in a way. So it's been really personally rewarding and eye-opening and really confronting in a lot of ways as, Penny has mentioned, um, I'm seeing really sick people that are really young and, and, that, and, and there are lots of social determinants of health that feed into that. Um, from a critical care point of view, in terms of my training, um, there's, I think there's an incredible value in understanding and learning and getting an exposure to what it is to, I think Alice Springs does this, um, incredibly well to give respectful um, 
culturally appropriate and sensitive care to a very complex, unique patient population. Uh, I think it's been easier having the, um, the practical support of even just having the agreements between hospitals to facilitate basic things like accommodation that make it at least financially viable to come, to come here, like just even basic things like that. Um, and then I think personally, the other thing I've noticed is that it's, it's wonderfully rewarding to, to be in a regional centre where you feel very quickly connected to the community. Um, and, and I think even just having that realisation that, oh, this is a wonderfully uh, rewarding and viable uh, place to train and to work um, long-term is, is, um, is a great thing to find out. Um, I do think about exposure because, you know, rural centres, it's a smaller centre. So there's, there's four beds here, uh, six, six rather, ICU beds plus the HDU beds, as opposed to say maybe 16 plus in a tertiary centre plus the HDU beds. So that's just a smaller, case number that you're that you're considering and there might be um, you know less exposure to particular case uh, case mix um, on the other hand there's a very different case mix here so I'm seeing as Paul mentioned pediatric patients um, we had 28 day old patient last week um, and we're having uh, I think that is a is a really valuable thing for me to see in my junior training, we're also seeing obstetric patients and trauma patients. So in the city, not being at a trauma centre, that's something that um, that I'm gaining here that I might not in the city. So I suppose so those are some of the things that, that I've thought about a little bit. Claire, um, you're not native to these shores. Um, so you arrived in Australia and your first placement <coughs> was in a regional centre. And it's fair to say that a lot of intensive care throughout Australia and New Zealand is staffed by people who are from overseas. What was it like to walk into that sort of system? So it was totally different for me because I didn't even uh, think about a career in intensive care. I was basically just looking for a job to stay in Australia, to be totally honest. And, uh, and I think being regional really influenced me in that because um, one of the things I know there's been a lot of chat about like the case mixes and stuff. But one of the things I think is a big benefit of regional centres is you get a lot of one on one times with the consultants. So um, going from as a resident who had never done any sort of critical care, I hadn't done any anaesthetics, I'd done maybe a little bit of ED um, that, that like everyone does. So, um, yeah, like. I had a very early exposure of getting to put lines in um, getting to go and, you know, um, see intubations, things that you wouldn't normally get to do as a, as a junior resident level. Um, and then the other thing is, so yeah, you got that sort of uh, professional bonds, but then also being in a regional place, uh, like I still have a lot of friends um, from different places that are like from Mackay. And then I worked in Darwin and I've been Dallas as well, sort of been around the regional blocks, but um, like, I think, it's a smaller community, so it's not as as um, Lauren said. If you live in the city, everyone's got their established like relationships and family, and you know you've you've lived there. Whereas, it, it's more a sense of camaraderie, I think, whenever you're, you're um, uh, regional, because everyone everyone knows everyone and hangs out together. And I uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that part of it. So, 
And that's the other side of this coin, I suppose, is that having gone through your training, you're now in a city and studying, uh, sorry, have completed your fellowship. How difficult do those social um, bonds that you've now made in the city make it to returning to regional practice? Um, quite the opposite, I think, especially with the lockdowns and things. Um, my husband and I are quite keen to to move back um, somewhere else, ultimately. Um, and a large part of that is to do with the, the lifestyle. Um, we only came down, my, Stuart's from Melbourne originally, but we came down here for me to do the advanced training part and, and to do the exams. Um, but I, I, we always sort of imagined we would we would move somewhere to be um, just having that sort of extra um, curricular things, you know, like um, being able to get away and go camping or things I never thought I'd say when I first moved here. But um, yeah, we, we actually miss that living in the city. And I think especially now um, having a family, I think it's uh, like there's a, not as much. I think find as attractive in the city, you know, like you're, you're not going out for dinner or things, whereas you sort of want somewhere that's nice to bring the kids up and have a bit of better weather. You know, the, the weather in regional places is a big plus usually, but um, uh, those those sorts of, yeah, let's say the things that aren't just work-related. Um, and and then, yeah, also being somewhere in a in a smaller unit, I think that you, uh, you know, that you want to have, like I imagine, like that you want to have relationships with people that you're sort of, um going to be working with especially in intensive care like you're in work a lot compared to um I, like actually in the unit compared to other sort of um career pathways so I think yeah from what I've seen um there seems to be even among the smaller units that they uh they, everyone seems to get on pretty well and Lauren and Claire, question to both of you. What do you think are the things that you need as a trainee that would make it easier for you to uh, initially work in uh, intensive care in regional areas and then subsequently stay on once you've finished your training? Uh, I think Laura made a good point in the the financial things. Alice is very well set up for that, that um, you get your accommodation provided because you obviously have your, um, you know, like your wherever you live and things at home. so to keep to keep that ongoing, uh, the having access to to teaching programs. I think whenever I was in Mackay, even for the primary Queensland at that point had uh, um, it wasn't Zoom in those days, but whatever it was that you, you can do that. Uh, you know that it was it was led from Brisbane or one of the tertiary centres, but no matter where you were, you could still participate in the teaching. So um, that's that's still very important because I think in in regional places people tend to be more at different stages in their careers um whereas if you're in a bigger center you know there'll be a core group that are going to do the primary or core group that are going to sit the fellowship so um having sort of access to that as well um i think is probably two of the things sorry lauren i'll let you talk (laughs) no i completely agree with everything you're saying and um i think yeah accommodation was was a really big one and even then i had to smuggle in my kittens (laughs) because relatively mobile being you know young single no kids but a lot of my other colleagues that couldn't swing it with their partner's job or their children or maybe yeah it's 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 not it's not super simple um relocating for a quarter of the year I think being offered the three months I was like oh that is a um you know it's a good length of time for someone that kind of you know wasn't quite sure what what I'd be finding and then I've got here and now I love it and I would love to stay for another three months or if, I, if it would be six months but interestingly I think if I was initially offered 
would you like to go for for a six month, 12 month training period? I'm, I'm not sure if I would have um, been brave enough to initially to try it out. Um, so I wonder if there's some degree of, of flexibility or tie-in or availability for, I don't know, ongoing stay. Um, I think things that would make it easier is I do wonder about, um, well, as you mentioned, working long-term is I think it's kind of where in your training you, you relocate to a regional centre because I do think it is a balance of being able to have sufficient exposure to, as Paul meant, all areas of critical care that I can feel confident and across. Um, and then if, if those, if, if that area maybe wasn't offered in a regional or we just didn't see it very much in, in, um, in, a, in a country community, um, if, yeah, how I'd be able to, to, to meet that gap. Um, or is it, is it possible that if I transition to a regional centre, is there, will I still be an attractive candidate to, to move back to the city? Um, or is it more of a one-way transition? And that's kind of something that initially I'd be like, I would love to come here and, you know, start my family here and start working here. But is, does that mean in the scope of my whole career, I might not be able to, to go back to a tertiary centre. And that might be something I had to have to consider quite seriously. Paul, in a similar vein, um, there is the appearance of a restriction of opportunities when you move to the regional areas. And one of those is about uh, the way that you develop your career as a consultant beyond fellowship. One such avenue, of course, is research, but that's something that you've been able to apply in a regional centre as well. Can you tell us about that? Uh, sure. Um, <clears throat> I've been really lucky uh, coming back to Alice Springs to have had a very supportive consultant group uh, who have allowed me to pursue some research interests uh, and have uh, allowed uh, some of that non-clinical time to be devoted to, to that. <clears throat> Um, there are a lot of things about regional Australia that lend themselves to research. The work in regional Australia is quite different. We've started exploring some of that anecdotally just with the conversations you've had with the others in this round table. Uh, but there's the opportunity to actually document some of that, uh, which is important for epidemiological um, grounds on the basis that there is a inequity an inequity between uh, capital cities uh, and regional Australia. Um, and I think the same can be said for New Zealand, although the data really only exists currently for uh, Australia. Um, we use the adult patient database. And uh, if I can do a little call out there, um, because the, the adult patient database uh, and in fact, all the registries that ANZIC's core hold contain an absolute wealth of data and information that is really just waiting for trainees and other consultants to tap into to describe intensive care practice. Uh, and we've done that in terms of looking at how regional rural ICU in Australia differs from uh, our city counterparts. And it turns out that, um, you know, what the work that regional rural units do compared to metropolitan units is not actually that dissimilar. The main difference is with tertiary units. Um, so, you know, I certainly hold 
some of Lauren's concerns that, you know, when you come to a, a regional place, are you precluding the opportunity to move back to a city? I, I think the answer is no, because the work with uh, metropolitan and regional units is in fact very similar. So, you know, moving back into a metropolitan unit, I, I see as no problems whatsoever. Does it preclude moving back into a tertiary unit? I think probably not. I think there would be a period of reminding yourself what that tertiary work is about. But, um, you know, at its basis, most things are still driven on physiology and physiology is what we know and do really well as intensivists. Um, it's just the applying that to slightly different patient groups. But I'll move away from the point uh, a little bit because one of the, there are some other really important differences between uh, regional, rural, metropolitan and tertiary units um, in terms of the type of patients that come in. They tend to be younger. They're far more likely to be admitted uh, emergently rather than electively. Uh, and tied in with that, you're slightly less likely to be looking after ventilated patients. Um, our work, which we published last year, I think it was in Critical Care and Resus, also threw out a couple of interesting mortality findings. Um, and it turns out that um, uh, if you're admitted to a regional rural unit, you seem to have a better mortality outcome than if you're admitted certainly to a tertiary unit and probably also to a metropolitan unit. Uh, and the, the obvious answer to the question why is, well, the sickest patients are transferred to tertiary units. Um, uh, but I don't think that's the whole story. When we were looking at the data, we uh, sliced and diced it in a number of different ways, uh, including uh, excluding uh, inter-hospital transfers if they left the regional unit and uh, separately excluding patients if they were transferred into a tertiary unit and, and then examining everything, including, you know, irrespective of your transfer status. And that outcome was surprisingly robust. Uh, and it does make you wonder why, um, what else is driving that? You know, it could well be that... Um, regional units because of the transfer times to arrive to a hospital mean that if you're going to die you've actually you're dead before you're admitted to um hospital so people have had their so-called trial of life and have demonstrated some uh some form of physiological stability or, or lack of fragility i guess um, before they've arrived and, and that's what's driving it it could be that um, it's a smaller team uh, and because it's a little more consultant driven, um, you know, the, uh, the very fact that you have a consultant driving things a little bit more rather than a senior reg with that clinical acumen and, and experience and gestalt that comes with seeing much more things means that you're, uh, you're doing slightly better with uh, foreshadowing what's going to happen and that's, that's a mortality benefit. Um, or it could also be that um, uh, there is perhaps less pressure on regional rural units to admit patients who don't have such a good prognosis. Um, and certainly it's been my experience largely that regional rural people perhaps have a better understanding of the cycle of life or the circle of life, so to speak, that you know, that death is an inevitable part of life uh, and that there is perhaps a bit more acceptance of um, futile treatment where it is futile and therefore there's less pressure to, um, to admit everybody who uh, has a poorer prognosis. 
you know, the research that we published last year showed that one in five um, patients admitted to intensive cares in Australia are admitted to regional and rural intensive cares. And that's actually a, you know, it's, it's not a huge amount, but it's, it's enough to be a significant part of the critical care work that occurs in Australia. And if one in five patients are being admitted to um, regional rural units, you know, a good chunk of your training time should be spent in those units. Um, and that should be for a number of reasons. One is, you know, uh, regional and rural Australia does suffer inequities, as does regional and rural New Zealand in terms of access to services. We know that regional and rural Australians and New Zealanders access services less. We know they have uh, less ability to be able to see particularly specialists. Um, it behoves us, I think, to address some of that inequity by trying to improve services where they exist. But it also behoves us once we have left those regional, rural or outer metropolitan areas and gone back to the citadels that are the big city intensive cares to understand what's happening in regional and rural uh, Australia and or New Zealand. Um, so that when you get the phone call from the um, regional, rural intensivist, the outer metropolitan intensivist that says, I've got this patient, I'm about to run out of what I can do to save them. I need some help. You have an understanding ear on the other end of the phone. One of the things that I find extraordinarily frustrating uh, speaking to a, uh, a colleague in a big city is uh, after you've told the story to hear, oh, it doesn't sound like they're going to make it, you should just palliate them there. Um, and if I thought they weren't going to make it, I would palliate them. The very fact that I'm on the phone at 3 a.m. in the morning uh, is because I have run out of options and somebody who I think is salvageable. And I don't think you get that if you haven't seen it and lived it. And that's one of the things that being a trainee in a regional rural area, you get to see and experience and feel that real visceral sensation of, I need help. That's all I'm asking. Penny, from your perspective as the director of an ICU, what are the skills that an intensivist in regional Australasia requires that are different from somebody who might be at one of the Royals and Saints hospitals in a bigger city? Look, um, I think one of the biggest things you need to be is adaptive. Um, you actually need to... You need to be flexible, you need to be brave, um, you need to be able to do the best thing that you can possibly do, even if you don't have all the specialist services around you, and even if it's outside your comfort zone. Um, and that ability to be adaptive, that ability to be brave and um, to utilise the, the skills focuses much more on what is best for the patient rather than what is best for you. And, you know, I, I, I think that's incredibly important in your training to actually do. Um, uh, it's really incredibly, as Paul says, incredibly important as a tertiary intensivist um, to be listening to that from that point of view um, when you're talking to your rural colleagues. But I think that's the biggest difference. Um, I think you do need more experience in paediatrics because you will come across it and you are quite a long distance from those things. You also, but you, and you need to um, 
work out and be able to challenge yourself in adaptive kind of situations where you um, you do need to be a little bit better at your skills. You need to be a little bit better at thinking out uh, um, through complex problems and working out as the best solution. Rob, as a member of the College Board, uh, one of your charters, of course, is to produce the intensivist of the future. How do we know that we're producing what we need for the future? Um, and what are the opportunities that lie ahead for intensivists in regional areas? That's a really, two really good questions. In, in answer to your question of how do we know, um, as, I, as I alluded to previously, our training program is a uh, six year, but often a decade long thing. And the only data that we have is some very early data from our pre-2014 curriculum where clinical directors and trainees were rating themselves and each other on whether they felt prepared for specialist practice. And our ability to repeat that data on a meaningful way on the post-2014 curriculum is going to be something that we're going to have to be looking at in the next year or two. So the honest answer is we don't know. And if people overrate or underrate ourselves, that's going to be an issue too. So what are the college doing? Well, like, like um, Claire and many of my colleagues, I was, I was able to, lucky enough to be able to train as a trainee on both sides of the Tasman, including Darwin. And I would suggest that unless you have been 1500 kilometres away from a PICU or an ECMO circuit that you've not really lived. So I totally, you know, um, totally get that. that. What it did show me is there's huge workforce force issues on both sides of the Tasman, which cannot be ignored. In Australia, there's these huge justifiable concerns about the opportunities for a large number of graduates accessing both vocational training programs and, of course, consultant specialist jobs. Whilst in New Zealand, we've got the opposite problem where we've got a relative shortage of applicants from Australia and New Zealand to our transition year or specialist jobs in even the big centres, let alone regional or rural. So, as I said previously, the college very basically affects supply, but the reality of how that gets distributed is highly complex. Um, so the, the workforce issues are still still going on. Demand, however, demand in the rural centres is driven by many factors. We've places like Alice Springs and uh, you know Penny and Alice and Paul and Di and Darwin that you've de they've demonstrated over many years and huge huge efforts of the value add that we as intensive care specialists give to an organisation. So you know, like our pioneers in the Northern Territories or Taranaki or Hawkes Bay. Um, and all that, while ANSCA and ASIM have generally phased out their mandated intensive care training time, so the future is going to have to be intensive care specialists in rural region, or at least people who have got some accreditation in that. And then, of course, you know, what can the college do? Well, we can have, we can produce trainees, but we can't force them to go and work in regional centres. We can have accreditation standards, but we can't force governments to actually require that as a minimum in rural and regional. And, you know, I've been lucky enough to be in the parliament this last sort of couple of months asking our government and lobbying governments to say, well, can we actually expect intensive care specialists to be to, to be looking after the public but we've also as a college got to have the humility to reflect whether or not our standards are workable and whether they are ongoingly fit for purpose so there's some work going on there so the board is working through a raft of proposal driven largely through through penny and paul um, and the indigenous health committee that are aimed at promoting a sustainable expert intensive care workforce for regional remote so we've got we're, we're working with ANSCA to sign off on a dual training pathway with anesthesia and that's hoping that we could go be able to go live in 2023 
we will need to look at different models of training programs, both in how they're structured, the hub and spoke models, but also the, that, that, that interfaces with employment. But that's just the beginning. So I think in summary, as a college, we've got to, we've got to take the humility in saying, is the way we've always done it, the way we should do it in the future, is that adequately achieving equity and sustainability for the rural and regional workforce? Um, and I, so I think there's a huge challenge and we've got to liaise with, with universities, with local government, with national government, with ANZICs, with the other colleges um, to, to build that in the future. Lauren, the obvious place to conclude this roundtable is with you. As you sit on the precipice of a career in intensive care, where does regional training and then a, a career in regional ICU sit for you? It's honestly, having reflected over this last two months on my time here, it's, it's kind of shot right up. It's very attractive. It's a wonderful life in the country. It's beautiful as I feel like I'm part of a bigger community here, oddly, than I do feel like when I'm in the city and I just have my own personal connections. But here, the person running your trivia night is the radiographer. And, you know, the person you bump into on a hike is, you know, someone you've seen down um, at the shop. So it's, I think there's a wonderful personal reward to that. I think in my goals and values and the reasons why I am a doctor and the reasons why I like participating in the health system, a lot of them are addressed really highly um, serving the uh, community here, which is, as I mentioned, a really special community with complex needs. And I think um, as an Australian, uh, it, it's a real privilege to, to participate in um, in helping address and do some good um, to that end. I think uh, it's, as I mentioned, it's a viable option. It is an attractive option, but it is about it, that considering the, uh, the exposure that I need to get along my, um, the whole of my training program and how I, will, how I might fit that in in terms of the longitude um, of my career. So, um, yeah, just lots to consider going forward. But yeah, definitely, absolutely something that seems like a, a great goal going forward. Paul Seckham, Penny Stewart, Rob Bevan, Lauren Cox, Claire Corrigan, thank you for joining us on this roundtable. Mm -hmm.